Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. As we move into this morning, the one thing I do want to say is I recognize there are a lot of folks that are newer to Mercy Church. And if that's you, I want to tell you about something that is happening this morning to help you move off the sidelines and into the game around here. It's something we call starting point. It's happening, it's about a 30-minute informational session that's happening after every service this morning. And we're going to basically tell you three things. We're going to tell you who we are, what we do, and how you can get connected to it. All right, pretty simple. Uh, It'll be right after each service. It'll be over for our Providence Road campus, right over in the chapel, and it'll be an easy thing for you to jump into. So I hope you'll take the time to to come and hear, because listen, you could sit around and just kind of come in, come out, and be a part of an audience, but that's not what a church is, and that's not what we want for you. We want you to step out and be a part of a a family where people are are challenging you in your faith, and you're investing into them as well, Uh, and that can start for you, no matter what your questions are about Mercy Church, that can start over um, over in starting point. So if you would, jump over there with us um, right after one of these two services. That's a great first step for you. Now, with all of that said, let's jump into our message for today. If you have your Bible, open it up to the book of Daniel. Um, we are in the book of Daniel. If you're newer with us, um, let me just kind of set up the situation. Daniel and his friends grew up in a community that uh, really all the institutions and everything else were influenced by a belief that the biblical God was the one true God. And everybody kind of believed that. It was a monotheistic society, all right? But then as young men, these guys were captured. They were taken to this place called Babylon. And in Babylon, this is what you would call a pluralistic society. Nobody had heard of this God that they believed in. And there were a bunch of different gods that everybody kind of worshiped. And so now, Daniel and his friends are trying to figure out what does it look like to follow the one true God, follow the God of the Bible inside of a society that doesn't follow that God. That's what's making this so helpful for us because we kind of exist in the same space, right? Where um, our culture doesn't just hang on to one true, like the God of the Bible is not the one and only God. We live in a pluralistic society where people look to any number of things to find meaning and significance in their life. And that's what's making this really helpful for us. We're today going to be into Daniel chapter 5, right? That's where we're going to go today. This is the short but packed story of King Belshazzar. And now, Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar. If you remember from Daniel chapter 1, Daniel got a new name when he was taken captive. The, the Babylonians gave him the name Belteshazzar. That's a different thing, okay? Belshazzar, Belshazzar, no, we're not going to do that. But Belshazzar is who we, is who we have for this morning, okay? Um, now, listen. The story has three movements to it, okay? There's this big party, and it's just elaborate. It's kind of chaotic and frenetic. Big party. Then there's the handwriting on the wall, 
right? And one of those things that even if you've never read the Bible before, you're like, oh, writing on the wall. I've heard that saying. This is where that comes from. And then you have Daniel's explanation of what all that means, all right? That's the outline we're going to follow today as we see what God has for us from this passage. And the big question, the big question today is, what makes your life matter? What makes your life matter? See, today we're going to see a few of the things that Belshazzar and really our culture as well looks to to find significance and meaning in our lives. Like, why does my life matter? At the end of my days, I'm able to say, that's why my life matters. That's why I am significant. It's, the, it's one of those questions that runs underneath the surface that everybody is dealing with, or even if, it's try, even if we try to avoid it, we're all trying to figure out, why does my life matter? That's the question in front of us today. Now, let me set some context for you um, that is really helpful to understand the scene, okay? We've jumped ahead in our, um, in our timeline from where we were last week. It jumped, jumped ahead about 22 years after Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king from last week, has passed away. All right, so we're now at the very end of the Babylonian Empire, okay? This is about 539 BC. Daniel is a really old man, and the Medo-Persian army, all you need to know is a foreign army under the rule of a guy named Cyrus is now closing in on Babylon. Babylon's no longer the greatest empire in the world. No, there's another army that's, that's coming and it's closing in. In fact, um, about a week before the events of what we're reading in Daniel chapter 5, about a week before, this Persian army had had this huge, huge victory over the Babylonians about 50 miles away. So now the Babylonian army is defeated. And here's Belshazzar hunkered down in his palace, and he has no idea when the army is going to arrive. In fact, he didn't know if the, the army's going to arrive and kill him, or they're going to send some kind of like emissary to say, hey, you're now sort of a, a vassal state of the Persian Empire. or what? He doesn't know. Nobody knows. Uh, and so the whole city's running around scared, not sure what's going to happen. And there's what's clear, what we see is, and the way this whole thing is set up is there's this dark shadow of death looming. It's looming, the demise, the end is near for them. And what we see in this chapter is what they give themselves to when the end is near. So let me sort of ask you a question to set that up so you can get in the frame of mind, okay? If you had 24 hours left to live and you found out right now, all right, right now, you got 24 hours left to live, what would you do? What would you spend your time doing? Uh, would you make some phone calls, go hard after your bucket list? You know, for me, I, um, uh, we were talking about it this week, and I said, okay, I, I know what I'd do. First, I'd have to call Pastor Scott, tell him he's got to preach Sunday, right? Um, second, I would say, um, all right, second thing, I'm going to eat a really good Wagyu beef steak. Like, I'm going to spend a, a crazy amount of money on, like, one good steak, last meal kind of thing, right? Um, and then after that... Uh, what I, I kept writing these things down, right? After, oh, buy a really big insurance policy for Courtney and the kids so they'd be okay, right? And then um, finish it off just playing, hanging with my family, right? Just playing games, having a good time. That'd be my last 24 hours. Um, I asked some of the staff, I got some really interesting uh, responses. Uh, Joey Schwartz, our associate campus director at Providence Road, said he would write the Schwartz Manifesto. I don't know what that is, um, but he's going to write it, and it'll be pu published after he dies, and will change the world, I'm sure. Um, Jessica Murray, um, one of our, our executive assistant, said she's going to take a nap. 
She's got 24 hours left, and she's going to use some of that to take a nap. She's like, I don't know how I'm going to fill all that time. Um, that was great. Charlie King's going to watch The Office. Um, Scott Urbanic is going to try to, to what he called, free solo a mountain. Climb a mountain without any ropes or anything. And to which I had to clarify, I'm not asking you how you want to die. I'm asking you what you would do with your time left, but that's what you do. Um, really, when you start thinking about it, it'd be a great, um, by the way, a great community group icebreaker for you. When you start to like get beyond, beyond some of the just sort of silly questions, it actually can get kind of revealing and, and kind of deep. See, here's the deal. Belshazzar and his crew are being confronted with their mortality. The end is likely near, and he cannot handle looking death in the eye. He just can't handle it. He doesn't know what to do with it. So what happens instead is he turns to the the go-to things that he has always found his sense of significance in, that have always answered the question for him, this is why my life matters, because I give myself to to these things. Maybe these are just the things, another way to say it is, they're the things that distract him from death, from answering it and looking at that thing. Y'all, the amazing thing about this party that we're looking into is that his go-tos are very similar to our go-tos of culture. The things that our culture turns to in hopes of finding meaning and significance in this life. We said, y'all, this series is all about how do we follow God inside of a culture that doesn't. See, one of the things we're doing, though, as the church, is we're trying to help the people in our culture lift their eyes out of the fog that they live in day in and out and see the beauty and glory of God that is better than what they're giving themselves to, right? But in order to do that, we got to get down in the fog and understand the things that they see, that they try to find meaning and significance in. You catch that? And that's a lot of what's happening here. That's why we're diving into this, this party that Belshazzar is throwing here, because we're trying to see how do they find personal meaning and significance. In short, what are the things that they're pointing to and saying, this is why my life matters? And when we can understand those, then we can speak the hope of God into those. Um, there are a few of them in here that I think we can all relate to as we go through. So we're going to go through the party, then the handwriting, and then what it all means with the rest of our time. Here we go. Verse 1, King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Now, I told you the, the storm is coming, Right? The end is is coming on them, and in the face of death and demise, old Belshazzar is getting turned. That's that's all I can say about this. Uh, I mean, this party is wild, even by Babylon standards. Notice his his concubines are there with his wives. That is a no-no in every culture ever that has ever existed. All right, you do not do that, definitely in this one. Kids, you can ask your parents later what a concubine is. I don't have time to really bring that and really address that right now, okay? Um, There is, this is just something that would never happen in a normal gathering. It's a deliberate attempt to create this sensual, chaotic, frenetic, um, very indulgent setting all at the same time. And he doesn't care about the fallout because there may not be a tomorrow anyways. Doesn't that ring just a little bit familiar to our culture? See, the first of what we're going to see, three things that Belshazzar turns to to find comfort and to find, really to reveal what he finds his significance and meaning in, the first is sex and romance. And our culture does the same thing today. In fact, um, you remember in the, the opening sermon how I kind of 
I set up that our culture has shifted a little bit underneath our feet from away from being a God-centered culture that it maybe was a few generations ago. Uh, this has been one of the biggest impacts because people still feel a need to matter to somebody. Everybody wants somebody to love them. There's even songs written with those lyrics, right? For a long time, God was the answer, but culture has largely taken that answer out, but still feels the need. It still feels the need to matter. And so modern mankind, we fix our need for this cosmic solution to matter. We fix that need onto another person. Y'all, you don't believe me. Just turn on the radio. All right, four out of the the top five songs on the Billboard Top 100 this week are about sex and romance. And the amazing thread, actually right now, very revealing, is how romance is failing to fix all their problems. It's the plot line also of mainstream music, of primetime television, which is just, you know, shocker, right? And here's what happens. When the single relationship doesn't work, people bounce from hookup to hookup, only to eventually be shook by the damage that they're causing to their souls. So they watch porn at levels that I don't need to even bring up here because you know how rampant it is. Y'all, this is All-Star Weekend here in Charlotte. And what do we get? We get... Um, all the major news outlets send out this, um, one of their articles is about how what's going to happen this weekend is that there will be an increase in sex trafficking because of all the people that are coming into our city. What is that? What is that? That, that would be the response. That would be one of the things that, that happens because more people are around in the city. You know what? It, it's culture. It's our people um, giving themselves over to the sex craze of Belshazzar, hoping that pleasure Intimacy with someone else will satisfy this longing that's in our souls. The problem, of course, is that it doesn't work, right? You cannot ask a messed up human person, which we all are, to possibly fill that need for love that you're carrying around. And so our desires start to twist and turn darker and uglier. There is just no permanent sense of wholeness, no lasting personal sense of significance inside of sex and romance. Sex and romance can't be what makes our lives matter. There's this guy, um, Ernest Becker. He wrote this really depressing book called The Denial of Death. I do not encourage you to read it, okay, Um, unless you just, just love 350 pages of dense psychology, all right? But um, he does do a really good job. He's an agnostic that does a really good job of revealing the problem with um, just a lot of the things we give ourselves to, and we give ourselves to things because we don't want to deal with the fact that death is, is coming for us all, the denial of death. But here's what he said that I thought was um, particularly just poignant and really hits with what we're talking about here in Sex and Romance. He said, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. In short... We do these things out of awareness. What he's saying is out of awareness of of death. We try and distract ourselves from death. And these things, drinking, drugging yourself out of awareness, spending your time shopping, they cannot give you meaning. They are not strong enough to give your life significance to make your life matter. We'll look at what Belshazzar goes into next. Verse 3, they brought in the gold vessels that that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. This, this little activity, what he's doing here, this is his way of remembering and celebrating the greatness of the Babylonian Empire. 
just when they were at their peak. Look at our conquests. Look at all the things we've achieved and accomplished. Y'all, this is colossally arrogant and short-sighted. That's part of the point. That's what the author wants us to see here. He's like, let's ignore the fact that all of this is about to get taken away from us and just revel in it. Everybody look around at me as I parade my accomplishments in front of you. It's like the rich man piling all of his wealth onto his deathbed so that he can just swim around in it one last time. What does he turn to now for significance? To prove that he matters to the world? He's turned to achievement, and so do we. Achievement is one of the things, that I, and it's built in from the time that we were, we were children. Any of y'all ever play um, King of the Hill growing up? Not the like, and there was like a TV show called King of the Hill. I never watched it, but not that. Um, but this game where one, one guy, this is just uh, me and my neighbors, right? One guy gets on the top of the hill, and then the job of all, everybody else is to run up there and tackle him and throw him off the hill and then stand up there and, and yell some primal scream, like, yeah, you know what I mean? Um, until you get tackled. And then the last one standing when you're all exhausted wins, right? And it's a fun game, but little did I know that that was going to be a metaphor for all of adulthood, right? I mean, it's what we do. All success, it, it, it's not really, all achievement is not just how much can I get, but how much more than you can I get? And we can lose ourselves in that effort. Finding meaning and creating wealth and trying to, to just conquer the world. My grandfather had a saying for this. He said, this is what, um, in short, this is what greed is. This is when you give yourself fully to just trying to be better than everybody else, what you'll do is this. He said, you'll get what you can, you'll can what you get, and then you sit on the can. That's an Al Shelton original just for you this morning. Um, it's the American dream. And even the current American dream has shifted just a little bit, not just to the amount of money you can accrue, but it's about standing out, about being known. How can I make my mark on the world? In research for today, I traveled down the rabbit hole of personal branding. There is a whole industry that is devoted to help you build your personal brand. What's underneath all that? It's building, you get to build wealth through being important in other people's eyes. So what happens? We become a culture that rates everything, right? We rate our food, we rate movies, we rate books, we rate our Uber drivers. We are constantly being rated and rating others, comparing ourselves, right, to see who can achieve the best standards in the eyes of others. I learned recently you can even rate your church on Google. And if that weren't enough, there are lists out there that compare churches to one another. Who's growing the fastest? Who's the largest? Y'all, what are we doing? We're trying to create meaning for ourselves based on how comparatively successful we are. We're trying to create meaning based on achievement. That's Belshazzar. The problem is it's never enough. It's never enough. And the more success we achieve, the more fear we have of losing it all, don't we? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't give meaning. Achievement, hear me, because this is a giant one. 
a giant one in our culture. It seeps into the church because we can mask it under the, the, we're just working really hard because we, we want to just, uh, it's, it's a good thing to have a good work ethic and we can mask what's actually happening. Achievement will not work to satisfy the longing of your soul to matter. It won't work. In the face of death, in the face of eternity, achievements just don't matter. They don't. So look what happens next, verse four. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is the boldest, most brash move that he does. They don't just drink from the goblets. They, drink, they praise their gods as they drink from the sacred artifacts of someone else's gods, the God of the Jews. This is a direct, this is just direct defiance of the God of the Jews. There's no doubt that under Daniel's influence, more people had heard about this God. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar lived a long time after the events of chapter four ended, and presumably he lived under the submission to Daniel's God. But this right here is an act of religious defiance against that God and sort of a religious insult, right, by saying, hey, listen, we're going to use the treasure we stole from your God to toast our gods. And in the shadow of death, they defiantly worship and give themselves to false gods. The final thing he uses to find significance, to find meaning, he's used sex and romance, he's used achievement, and he's using religion. He's using religion. And look at how he's doing it. He's taking the things of God and using them to worship man-made idols. There's a reason the author makes a point to list out the building materials of these gods. Right, like he's saying you can go to Lowe's, watch a 10-minute YouTube video, and build one of these things because there's nothing powerful about them. They are worthless idols. Religion will do this. It'll do it through behavior modification. You posit a God, you set up some rules, you follow those rules, and you're rewarded, and if you don't follow the rules, you're punished. It's a means of controlling people, and when we start to think about how we do that, honestly, it's pretty frightening. I know you're like, wait a minute, is Pastor Spence saying that uh, Christianity does this? No. Listen, Christianity is not a set of rules. It's a faith claim based on a news event. And it doesn't coerce you into changing your behavior so that you'll get a reward. It announces to you the behavior of Jesus who earned the reward for you that you could never earn anyways. We all need to say something, though. Some of you may be using the things of God to serve your idols. I'll never forget, y'all, I was growing up, my family went to church, and there was a, this one Sunday, it's one of those things that you kind of remember, I don't know, maybe it was just the right impressionable age to, it just stayed with me. I saw, um, it's like in the hallway or somewhere in the church, this angry older man um, come up to the pastor and say, you better watch out, or you're going to be out of my church. Now, what's happening in that moment? Because that's the most frightening pronoun I think you could possibly utter, my church. Now, hear me out. It's good when we say things like, like, I love my church. And I hope if you're a member of Mercy Church, it's because you feel that sense of ownership, that you are part of the mission and movement and everything else. But, but what I'm saying here, I think you can probably tell, was something different. This was control, my church. This 
was a man using something that belonged to God to serve his own need for control. And that's dangerous. Because y'all, what is something we all know, the church wasn't his. The church is God's. We exist to serve him, not the other way around. What you're about to see is one of the most severe and swift rebukes in all of the Bible. And it came in response to someone repurposing God's things to worship something other than God. Y'all, moralistic behavior, just following a set of rules in the face of eternity, that's just not gonna matter. It's not gonna give you meaning. Sex and romance, achievement, religion, the, the big three ways we try to make ourselves matter to this world, the problem with them is they don't work. They don't work. And whenever we pause long enough just to, pull ourselves out of the distractions those things give us, that's when we realize that we're never really satisfied. When we look at the the shadow looming on the horizon, these things just don't offer the answers that will satisfy the soul. And by the way, let me say something just right here. I don't know if I have time or not, but I know it might sound a little bit morbid that the, the context for setting this whole thing up is if you think about death, and in the face of death, these things don't matter. And if you feel like, oh man, that's morbid, that might actually be an indictment on our culture that I have to caveat this whole sermon, right? To say, now listen, I know we don't often talk about this. Like, listen, death does come for us all. And we're kind of silly and foolish to not acknowledge that, that it's out there, right? And that the death rate of humans is still at 100% right? It is coming for us all. And I don't mean that to just like to to put fear over you, but there's certainly a a warning tone to this passage that calls us to wake up to what are we finding significance and meaning in? Because this big exercise in denial of reality that Belshazzar is doing, it looks so much like how we operate today. So into that, into that whole thing comes the handwriting on the wall. Verse five, at that moment, the height of the party fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. (laughs) So good. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Main thing I want you to see at this point, God is waking this king up and it's scary. He soils himself. That's when you know you're scared. His knees are knocking together. His face is turning pale. He's probably passed out. Now, we'll see in a second what the handwriting was. What we know is that it was a mystery to the king. At this point in the text, what we know is that it's a mystery. It's frightened the king. So he calls in his guys, right? Verse 7, the king shouted, bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, the diviners. And he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the inscription, gives me its interpretation, will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck and it will have the third highest position in the kingdom. Now, listen, if you've been here for uh, the other couple of sermons in this series, this is actually becoming a, a common thread. There is something mysterious that happens that nobody seems to be able to figure out, and then God uses this seemingly mysterious thing to prove the impotence of the wisdom of the age. Because all the smartest people in the kingdom can't figure it out. 
And once they're all out of ideas, then they turn to Daniel. And God gives Daniel the words to say. That's what's happening here. The king says, all right, best and brightest, what is that about? And they're like, we don't know. Right? He's panicking. And this, I don't want to get fully into the writing. I want to let the text um, lead us there in just a second. But here's what I'll say. Y'all, sometimes we go to great lengths to explain away the things that God is using to get our attention. We will look for any way to figure out what our circumstances mean that doesn't end in us surrendering to God. And when we do that, we end up looking as confused and silly as this king until we finally turn to God and say, okay, God, all right, I'm yours. What do you want from me out of this? Listen, I think this is one of the things that I hope um, will catch you right where some of you are. Whenever your only option left is turning to God, that moment right there is his kindness towards you. And if you're in that moment where you cannot figure out life right now, where it has knocked you sideways, there's no explanation, you don't understand why these things are happening, this might be God's kindness towards you to finally get you to turn your heart and your mind and your life towards him, where you can actually find true life, true meaning, true purpose, true significance that you've been searching for. And that might be what he's doing today. We're gonna see that for Belshazzar, it was too late. But one of the reasons this story is in scripture is so that you and I, the readers, don't make the same mistake that Belshazzar made. But I just got this awareness that this awareness, I feel like, that some of you are going through a moment that is confusing and scary. And I promise, I promise, when you turn to God, finally surrender to him, you will experience grace. You'll experience love. You'll experience comfort and peace that he promises you in Christ. You can have that. He is always the only one true option for you. Now, skip forward about 10 verses, and Daniel comes in and explains what this all means. He answered the king. He said, you can keep your gifts and your rewards. Give those to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. David's saying, God's not for sale. He owns you, not the other way around. And by the way, Belshazzar, that stuff doesn't matter. The stuff doesn't matter. And Belshazzar just can't get his mind around that. So Daniel recounts our story from last week with Nebuchadnezzar. He said, listen, God was the one that gave Nebuchadnezzar, 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 man, Nebuchadnezzar his greatness. And then when old Neb got proud, God took it away. And God didn't, didn't give it back until verse 21, until Neb acknowledged that the most high God, that he's the one who's the ruler over the kingdoms, that he puts people in charge as he pleases. And then verse 22, look at what Daniel, and now he directs it right to Belshazzar. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. That's the point of chapter five. You have, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you've not glorified the one. Look how he describes God. Glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the course of your life. Therefore, 
he sent the hand. And this writing was inscribed. Two phrases make what's happening here very clear. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. Therefore, he sent the hand. Verse 25, this was the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom, brought it to an end. Echel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom's been divided, given to the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian army that's coming in. Then Belshazzar gave an order. And this is fascinating. Again, he seems to respond positively. They clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him. He should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, this is how Belshazzar's story ends, that very night, the king of the Chaldeans was killed. The army that was coming, the shadow that was looming, was there before he even knew it was, before he even expected it. Verse 31, Darius the Mede, or Darius, Darius, you pick, doesn't matter. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. The last few minutes we have, I want to tell you what you and I need to take away from Daniel's message to Belshazzar. It is for certain, uh, there's there's basically two purposes here. It is to warn us away from the futility that the Babylonians were giving themselves to. And it is to call us towards finding significance and meaning to seeing that what makes our life matter is being held in the hands of God. And there we will finally find the significance we've been searching for. Here's the first thing. First thing I want us to take away, make God's word your first priority instead of your fallback plan. I wanted to say here, trust God's word, just make it that simple. But what I realized is that the way you can tell if you trust God's word is how you prioritize it. When you boil down what happens in Daniel 5 is that God busts into a hopeless situation and he busts into it with his word. It's his word that wakes Belshazzar up to the futility and actually to the counterproductive things he's been doing. Here's the thing, y'all, our culture is searching for significance in relationships, in achievement, even in false religion, and it just won't find significance there. They won't find purpose there. They'll find distraction and even distraction from, even denial of the reality of our mortality, but they can't answer the big question, why do I matter? When you turn to God's word, you'll find the answer to that. You'll find the answer that you matter because God created you in his image. And that gives you inherent value because he created you. And not only that, he says that he loves you. And this has eternal significance because when you ran away from him, he sent his son to come and pay the penalty for your sin and my sin so that we could be restored back to God and spend eternity with him in our one true home. That means you matter because God looks at you and he says, child, nothing is more precious to a parent than their child. And you matter to him like a child matters to a parent. He loves you and he says, you can exist with me. You can find significance and meaning in me, and you can find that for all eternity, for all eternity. Listen, the question, what happens when we die? 
We need big answers because that's a big question and our culture just can't give those answers. We were sharing the gospel on campus at UNC Charlotte a couple weeks ago and I was talking to this one guy. I was like, and we got to that, that point. I wasn't even really planning on going that direction with the conversation, but um, he said he's an atheist. And one of our guys says, well, what do you think happens when you die? He goes, nothing. I said, man, that's pretty sad. He goes, yeah. Is that it? You're just going to be sad? He goes, I just don't think about it. Are we satisfied? Is that a satisfying answer? No, not when we really think about it. But in God's word, you can find real significance, real meaning. And Daniel, in this way, is telling us, not just that we can trust God's word, but that we should, that we should trust all of it, that we should dive into it. So listen, if you're on the fence about the Bible and you're in here today, let me just encourage you, give it a shot. I mean, what do you got to to lose? But you can't only take the parts of it that you like. When we do that, we make it one of those little idols made out of stone or wood. This time just made out out of paper. Instead, just for a little while, give the whole thing, just give it a shot. Read, start reading the Gospel of Mark. Invite a, a Christian friend to do this with you. You don't have a Christian friend? Let um, one of your pastors know. Let me know or Pastor Scott, one of your pastors know. We will be glad to read this thing with you. Maybe uh, for Christians, listen, maybe it's time for you to make the Bible your home once again, to abide into God's word. You'll find an identity in Christ there. It'll be more fulfilling, more stabilizing, more peace-giving than anything our world has to offer. And let me say this. Not only make God's word your first priority, make God's plan your first priority instead of your fallback plan. There's a kind of a a general thing that's happening in the book of Daniel that's a a model to us of, uh, we said this before, Daniel's being sent into a foreign culture to explain who God is so that they can come and worship the one true God. Y'all, that's the church now. That's what we are called to. And so maybe you're making God's plan, your plan involves looking at your life through the lens of how has God placed me here and now for his glory instead of my own. And that, that might mean things as simple as that one person who is far from God, but close to you, praying for them and being willing to say, okay, my life is about how they can lift their eyes out of the fog and see the beauty and glory of God how can I help make that happen? How, can, how is God wanting to use me to that end? It might mean going on a short-term mission trip. Look, you follow your, uh, this is just reality, you wanna do a quick heart check on where your life is, follow your money and your time, and you'll see what is your first priority. And this is a challenge for you to make God's plan for this whole world in your life, make it your first priority. I gotta keep going. Here's the, the next thing I want you to see. Beware, beware, beware of presuming on the grace of God. Y'all, verse 22, Daniel says, you remember all that stuff that happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Belshazzar, you knew all of that. This isn't news to you. You know that story, and you still chose to exalt yourself against the Lord. Even though you knew what you were doing was in direct defiance of God, you did it anyway. Maybe he thought that God would just give him a second chance and another second chance and another second chance like he did with King Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe he thought, sure, as long as I got Daniel around, I should be okay. He presumed on the grace of God and he forgot that God sets whoever he wants as the rulers of whatever kingdoms he chooses. And let me tell you something. One of the most frightening things that I hear people say, I know I shouldn't do this, but God will forgive me 
so I'll do it anyway. It's one of the most disheartening, saddest things, scary things that I hear people say. I've heard those words verbatim come out of people's mouths as reasons to engage in all kind of rebellion against God. So humbly, what I want to say to you is if you find yourself trying to catch God in a theological loophole that will justify your sin, that's called pride. That will excuse your sin, that will make it okay, that's pride. We took pride to task pretty hard last week, but we got to come back to it again here. There's a reason the book of Daniel has four episodes back to back to back all about pride. It's because we are so, so susceptible to pride and blind to it. Here's what we said about pride. Pride is anything where you're replacing God with you. Every chapter in Daniel is telling you, look at your pride. When you say, God will forgive me, so I'll just do it, that is revealing that you don't worship the most high God. You worship yourself and just call yourself God. You will never be able to find true significance, the meaning you're meant to have. You'll never be able to find that until you come to grips with your pride. Think of it this way. I mean, Christianity is telling you that God's made a way for you to be saved from your sin. But if you don't think you are sinful and in need of saving, why would you care? But when you come to terms with your sin, the floodgates of God's grace will open. His love will finally satisfy what you've been looking for. Now, those are the warnings of Daniel 5. Prioritize his word and beware of your pride. And then it, it closes, pointing us to a source of significance. You see, in one sense, the writing on the wall is for all of us. All our days are numbered. All of us are deficient in some way because we are all sinners and none of our kingdoms will last forever. The sentence on all of us for our sin is mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Yet the hope of the gospel is that Christ has reversed that sentence. In Christ, God offers us eternity with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So now the shadow of death looming in the distance, we don't have to fear it. That's why the apostle Paul says, death, it's been swallowed up in victory. So death, where's your sting now? Where's your victory now? So we ask the Lord to teach us to number our days here now so that we can use them for his glory. We don't need romance or achievement to find significance. We have it in what God says over us, who we are in Christ. Y'all, apart from Christ, I have been found wanting. I've been found deficient. That sin measured against the holiness of God. But the gospel says my sin is forgiven and my record is cleansed by his blood. So now I'm hidden with Christ. And I wear his righteousness like a cloak over me, like new clothes. And God looks at me and he doesn't say, no, 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 you were deficient. And so your life is being asked of you. Now in Christ, he says, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Parson, my kingdom will fall. Y'all, the Shelton kingdom, all 0.5 acres of it. One day, it's going to fall. But we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. I've got eternal significance and an eternal permanent place in God's kingdom. So I'm not trying to cling to my kingdom here. I don't have to because I'm just a resident. And that allows me to be open and generous with everything that God has given me here and now. Do you know Christ like this? Where he fills your life with victory? Do you know that forgiveness? Do you know that wholeness? Do you know that sense of significance? 
that God speaks over you in Christ because that, that is available for you and it's a gift. You don't have to earn it. It's there for you. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that we would heed what we see in this chapter of Scripture, that the things that, that the culture around us would say, this will make your life matter. God, that we would just see them for the, the empty things that they are, that we would turn our hearts and minds to you. And we would see that you actually, you give us eternal significance. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for Christ who, even when we were running towards those other things, he came and rescued us from them and brought us back to you. If you don't know that love, that is available for you today. As everybody else is praying and hopefully turning their hearts back to the one true God, you can do that maybe for the first time. Maybe you're in that moment of confusion, it's scary, like where this king was. You can simply turn your heart and say, God, I need you. I believe Christ died for me. I give you my life. And he promises to save you from that sin, to rescue you, and you will find eternal significance in the love of God for you. God, we praise you in Christ's holy name.